All right, y'all open up your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is the third to last book of the Old Testament. And uh, we're finishing up our series tonight on seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. And I think a really good question to ask ourselves before we read this text is this. What would you give if you could be absolutely certain that all of your sins were forgiven? What would you give if you could know with absolute certainty that all of your sins are forgiven? We're going to see that answer here in this text tonight. Zechariah 3, we'll read the whole chapter. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the riches of your word here in this text. And truly, I think it's one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. And in the next remaining time, would you help us just to just to look at a fraction of it and just to turn the diamond ever so slightly so that we can see the beauties that are here in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I know this is a text that You've worked in my heart so much over so many years. And I'm asking that for these students, that you would help them maybe for the first time, or maybe they've read this several times. So I'm asking, Father, that you would make this near and dear to their hearts, because this truth is amazing. Holy Spirit, work it in our hearts and help us to trust that Christ really has forgiven us of our sins. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Few things plague us more today than shame. In order to condemn the sin of greed, Charles Dickens wrote the novel A Christmas Carol, where the ghost of Christmas past shows up to haunt 
and shame Ebenezer Scrooge for his past sins and mistakes. And remember, as the ghosts travel with him through his past, they make him observe his past mistakes again and again and again. And when Scrooge becomes upset by these memories, the Spirit says to him, these are the shadows of the things that have been. That they are uh, what they are. Do not blame me. And distraught, Scrooge cries out, leave me, take me back, haunt me no longer. Now, maybe you've never seen that little movie or you never read that novel, but we all know what that feeling is like. The feeling of being haunted with our past over and over and over and over again. Sometimes it merely happens in our conscience. Sometimes it happens when we look at social media. Sometimes it happens when we hear people say things about us. But it feels as if we're being haunted by our past over and over and over and over again. The question is, can we ever take a break? Can we ever find real, true, lasting forgiveness? See, even in our culture today, our cancel culture today, we live uh, essentially with this story of the ghost of Christmas past. You see, ask the question this, what is it that shames you most? Maybe it's your pornography use or the names you called someone one time in that group setting or the rumor that you started about someone or the times you've gotten drunk and done something stupid or the times you've denied knowing Jesus in front of other people or that sexual sin or that meaningless hookup after finding someone on Tinder or same-sex attraction, or the explosion of anger you let out on someone in front of others, or cheating on your boyfriend or girlfriend, or even this, your past middle school and high school life, right? Some of you are about to go back for the summer, maybe for the first time after your first year of college, and you're dreading it because you know your shame. We all feel it. And shame keeps us in like this this film session that just seems endless. It's as if our, our lives are constantly portrayed on the screen and we're forced to sit there and review them over and over and over again. The question is, can we ever take a break? You see, the ghosts of Christmas past might do that to Ebenezer Scrooge, but the question is, is this what God is like for his people? Is this what God is like for his people? You see, what we're going to see in this text is actually something so different, so extravagant, that it's hard to believe. But what we must do is we must take God at His word. He sets the tone. He determines the truth. He determines who He is. So believe it. Let's march through it. Look at verses 1 through 2. Keep your Bibles open because we're going to really march through this. We are accused, but we will be defended. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? You see, in this context of the book of Zechariah and the reason why it's towards 
the end of the Old Testament is because this book is written in the setting. Remember when uh, Israel and Judah, they had gone into exile and now they started to come back. They've come back and they're starting to build some walls. They're starting to rebuild the temple. But it's not as good as what it used to be. And matter of fact, we learned from the book of Haggai that actually the people are not in a very good spiritual condition. And the question is, even amidst that, can God still really be for his people? Is God really for his people? Joshua is the high priest. And what a high priest does is the high priest represents Uh, their people to God and God to the people. And so really the tension here is this. If Joshua cannot be the high priest, then there can be no cleansing and forgiveness of sins for the people. Because if you're going to be saved, if they're going to be saved, you need a high priest. So Joshua stands here before the angel of the Lord and he stands to be judged. That's what this... What it means there is that when it says he's standing before the angel of the Lord, it's a posture indicating someone coming before a judge. And he comes before the judge representing his people to God. And it's, it's kind of intimidating. But we have a hint of how it might unfold. Do you know what Joshua's name means? It means Yahweh saves. Not Joshua Not his own works, not his own efforts, not his own tactics. Nothing of Joshua will save Joshua. Yahweh saves Joshua. But as he stands there, who is there at his right hand to accuse him? Look at it. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Make no mistake about it. There is a real personal devil. And the devil, Satan... He is one of the fallen angels, and he was the one in the very beginning in Genesis 3 tempting Adam and Eve. And he has a fleet of an army, and they do his bidding. And this is part of the main thing that they do. They accuse God's people. And we need to remember that the spiritual world is real. It is real. And we've seen that all throughout scriptures. You see that in Genesis 3, and you've seen it uh, in Job, and you'll see it in the life of Jesus. See, Satan and his demons are always lurking in the background, always finding ways to attack God's people. And they want to attack God's people because they want to prevent them knowing the benefits of their redemption. Satan, you got to ask the question, what does his name mean? Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. What does Satan's name mean? Satan's name means the accuser. That is literally what his name means. He's the opponent. He's the adversary. He's the one who is constantly pointing the finger at God's people saying, you are not righteous. And when it says that he stands at Joshua's right hand, here's actually what's really cool. Look at it. It says Satan standing at his right hand to what? Accuse him. Here's something that's really cool. In the Hebrew, it literally reads this. That Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. Satan is the accuser. And he's going to Satan Joshua. He's going to accuse Joshua. He's going to haunt Joshua with these accusations. And here's one of the things we learn about Satan. Is that he's the complete opposite from Jesus. Jesus is the advocate 
He's the lawyer who defends us. Satan is the prosecutor. And this is a really fascinating thing that you'll see in all of Scripture. God uses words and Satan uses words. God's words create. They build up. They save people. They redeem people. Satan destroys. He tries to cast people into chaos and confusion and sin. And he's using his words to attack Joshua. And so that means this. You might say sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That ain't true. I don't know who came up with that, but we all know that's not true. Because one of the most harmful things, that, and Colin read this quote earlier, one of the most painful sufferings you can go through is whenever you feel like you're trapped in your conscience and you're in that courtroom setting and it just says guilty, guilty, guilty. Words. That's what he does. It's actually interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 where it says that we are to withstand the schemes of the devil. Schemes are made up of words. Actually, when you look at the entire armor of God, it's actually fixated around bulking yourself up with God's word. Matter of fact, the shield of faith. Faith particularly in God's promises. Faith in God's reality. It's used to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Because his words are like flaming arrows that lodge within your conscience and burn within. Have you guys felt that before? Yeah. That's what's happening. What does he accuse you of? He accuses you of your sin. He accuses you of breaking God's covenant. He'll say things like this. God is just. God is holy. He cannot let sinners off the hook. Do you really think you can trust him? Do you really think you can trust his plan? He only wants to show you part of the truth. And what he'll do as he only shows you part of the truth is that he will haunt you with your own past. He'll haunt you. He'll hound you. Literally, I was having a discussion with someone earlier and they were saying that there's this particular thing that they were struggling with and their conscience is literally eating them up and they don't know what to do. And so even at some points for this person, they've made vows to not speak or vows to not eat because they don't want to sin against the Lord. And these are the things that are coming up in their conscience. Where do you think that's coming from? He loves to hound you about your past, to haunt you about the things you've done, and he never, ever wants you to forget it. And he'll constantly say things like this, I know what you did last weekend. I know what you sent to that person on Snapchat. It might be a secret for you, but I know that you slept with that other person. I know those secret desires that you're entertaining. I won't let you forget those mistakes that you made at the beginning of college or in high school. And he'll put it up on the film and he'll play it over and over and over again. You guys feel that? Yeah. How does he accuse you? He accuses you by showing the law. That's what he does. He shows you God's law and he is constantly saying, look, you don't measure up. You say you're one of God's people, but God says, look, if you're going to be saved, you must abide perfectly by God's law. And he's constantly going down the list, showing you how you never measure up. And here's the thing. When you look at the law, you will never be enough. 
You might obey something outwardly, but he'll get you to examine your own heart and you'll realize I'm not doing it inwardly. For Satan, it's never enough. He only goes on a sin hunt. He never goes on a grace hunt. That's what he does. He keeps you focused on your own sin. He keeps you focused on your own past, on your own mistakes. He never gets you to look outward at who Christ is. And he hounds you with these words. He, he, he frightens you with these threats. And he'll even take scripture and quote it at you. And he'll paint God, as one person says, Satan paints God in Satan's own colors. That's often why some of us have stopped reading our Bibles recently or we stop praying or we stop going to church because we feel that hounding. You see, what Satan loves to do is he loves to invade the conscience and put us in that courtroom as if we are on trial. Now, you notice that. Look at this. This is what you need to notice whenever you're reading Scripture. Positionally, where is Satan standing? What does it say? He's standing at Joshua's right hand. That's interesting. Because the right hand is a position of authority. You see what's happening here? Satan, the prosecutor, has come to stand at Joshua's right hand. Satan is making it feel to Joshua as if Satan's words are what really matter. That Satan's authority is what really stands rather than God's authority. And that's always what he tries to do. He always tries to say, you must listen to me rather than listening to the gospel. You see, it's the opposite of Jesus as it describes him in Romans 8.34 when it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. He's interceding and and praying for us, praying for the forgiveness of sins, not saying, see, I know what she did last night. I know what he did last weekend. Satan loves to rush us with his words, to push us around, to frighten us, to discourage us, to worry us, to make us obsess over our own sins. And he loves to condemn us. You see, he loves to keep you consumed with you and your failures. That's what he loves to do. Do you guys feel that? When does he accuse you? I love this one quote. I quote him a lot. Wilhelmus Abrakel. Listen to this. The moment you decide to follow Jesus, the devil will exert himself with a vengeance to use all his wiles and wickedness to prevent you following Jesus. If he cannot prevent this, he will endeavor to torment you and trouble you and thus keep you from living a holy and joyful life. That's exactly what he's trying to do to Joshua. Listen, Satan cannot take away your salvation, but he can try to take away the experience of it. That's why it often feels as if God does not love you. It feels as if you are not saved. Who do you think is at work? Remember this. There's only two types of people. There's only two people groups. You are either in the kingdom of Satan or you are in the kingdom of God. And when God saves you, he plucks you up from the kingdom of Satan and he brings you into his kingdom. Do you think Satan's going to sit there and not attack you ever? That's crazy. That's actually one of the massive things that we're missing today is that we forget that this is happening all the time. He loves to attack God's people, especially at the very moment when we want to follow Jesus. 
Here's what one person says. When he attacks us, it often results in that. Y'all have heard me mention this, this onfectungen. And it really, is a, it really is an incredible word and nothing else is like it. That's why I keep using it. What is onfectungen? Here's what it is. It is the grinding sense of feeling utterly lost. By it, he, he's his biographer, Martin Luther, who, uh, who developed the phrase. By it, Luther intended the idea of swarming attacks of doubt that could convince people that God's love was not for them. Have you ever done something and you felt hounded by your guilt and your shame and you felt this was the last straw? Or maybe you did something years ago and you haven't thought about it in forever. And in a moment, it just seems to swarm you and you say, oh my goodness, I'm guilty. There's no way I can fix my past. I'm done for. Onfectungen. Onfectungen is one of the main influences to our anxiety and depression and crippling shame that can even result into things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. It can be very powerful. See, that's why Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritan pastors, says this, Christ, the scriptures, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four primary things that should be first and most studied and searched. Christ, the scriptures, your own hearts, and Satan's devices. He says those are the four primary things that you should study in order to know the Christian life. That could not be more true. That is so much of what we deal with. That is so much of what we go through because he's constantly shooting his flaming darts at you. Yet, look at verse 2. The Lord says to Satan... The reason why I read it loud is because this word rebuke actually is a loud rumbling sound of anger. It is literally the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's, it's, it's this word that is used for loud speech of absolute authority. It is a sharp, loud word and it puts something to end, something that is undesirable. In other words, this. God will absolutely not listen to Satan's accusations. Praise God, right? He will not listen to them. Now let's go ahead and put that into play. If he won't listen to them, why do we entertain them? God's not going to listen to them. God is standing on his truth. You see, God, you see this in verse 2 where it says, And the Lord, there's one time, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. There's a second time. Again, the Lord who has chosen. There's three times where it says the Lord. And is it lowercase or is it all caps? It's all caps. What does that mean? It means the covenant name Yahweh. Remember, who saves Joshua? Yahweh saves Joshua. Yahweh is the one who is rebuking Satan. Now, how do we know who Yahweh is? Here's how we know. Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7 says this, The Lord, the Lord, so literally Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. I might have just repeated that, but that's okay. 
That's what he front loads his statement with. Grace. But Satan only wants you to, wants you to hear the second part of this statement. This is still true of God, but Satan will only show you half the picture. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But he doesn't want you to hear the fact that God will visit you with love to the thousandth generation. But that's who God is. God stands to show grace to Joshua. And that means that in the midst of the spiritual warfare, we have to know the full truth of who God is. It's God's authority that he speaks back uh, to with Satan. And it is a rebuke of deliverance. It's actually the same word uh, in Exodus 15 verse 8 when it's used of the blast of God's nostrils to part the Red Sea so that God's people might be delivered. It's a rebuke of deliverance. It's the same thing that Jesus would do when he spoke to the Sea of Galilee and it calmed down when the demons were threatened to end his ministry by sinking them. In other words... When God speaks, He does what He says. When God's Word speaks, it does what it says. What's so interesting about this is that Satan was trying to Satan Joshua, right? Satan was trying to accuse Joshua. Here's what's interesting. Now Satan is the one being accused. Satan's the one being opposed. And God is rebuking him. You see, how is God still speaking today? How is God rebuking Satan today? He's actually doing so through the preaching of the word and the sacraments. That when you hear God's truth proclaimed to you, that is your truth. Amen? That's yours. When you hear about the forgiveness of sins, that's yours. When you hear about what Christ has done for you, that's yours. If you are a Christian, these promises are yours. And you bank on those. And frankly, you tell those other voices and those other thoughts, shut up. Because God's word stands. Amen? It's amazing. Whose words will we believe? We need to push out of our thoughts. It's hard. It's so difficult. So I was telling this person earlier, it, 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 it is so incredibly difficult, but we have to fight, and it is a fight to push Satan's temptations and his doubts and that onfectungan out of our minds. But God says, look, here's why I am showing mercy. Look at this. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Notice this. Not this. Well, Joshua's really not that bad. He's a pretty good, he's a pretty good chap, right? He's got it all together. Or he's done this. He's not the best guy, but he's shown a lot of effort. He's got a lot of potential in him. It's none of that. God is not pointing to Joshua. God's not telling Joshua, look at yourself. God's saying, look at me. I'm the one who chose you. That is your assurance. Dear Christian, stop only examining yourself and look at the God who chose you. Trust in him. His word stands. And matter of fact, actually, when you stop obsessing with yourself and you say, look, I'm putting these thoughts to bed and I'm going to trust in God's promise, that actually is faith. You see that? We asked the question earlier, is God like the ghost of Christmas past? And we say definitively, he is not. He's not like the ghost of Christmas past. 
You see, we also realize in verses 3 through 7, we are dirty, but we will be cleansed. Look at verse 3. Keep your Bibles open. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. Joshua was wearing these unclean clothes. This was so interesting because no doubt that's what Satan was ready to accuse him for. The clothes that Joshua would be wearing are the clothes that the high priest would wear. And Joshua can't do his duty unless he himself is forgiven. Unless he himself is cleansed. And remember, if Joshua can't be forgiven, if Joshua can't be cleansed, then the people of Israel won't. And so it hinges here. Joshua is dirty. God's not saying this. Well, your sin's not that big of a deal. You know, the the list that we mentioned earlier of of the hookup culture and your anger and the same-sex attraction and, and, and your gossip or whatever it is, we don't say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. But God knows how to handle it. Sin is a big deal, but grace is a bigger deal. That's what makes the gospel amazing. We actually are clothed in filthy garments. Literally, as it says filthy, it means excrement. Filth signifying guilt. And we feel that, and that's so much of what shame feels like, isn't it? We feel dirty. We say to ourselves, I'm not lovable. I'm not cleansed. I'm not forgiven. There's no way I can be embraced. I've done too much. And Satan loves it when you stay there. He loves it when you look at yourself. He wants you to be defined by your past. He wants you to be defined by your shame. He wants you to be defined by your guilt. He wants to keep you living in the past rather than pressing forward to what lies ahead, as Paul says in Philippians 3.13. But guys, you have to remember this. When you drive a car, you don't drive very well if you're constantly looking in the rearview mirror. You just don't drive very well. Matter of fact, that's a great way to get in a, a, an easy fender bender. If you're constantly looking at the person who's tailgating you from behind, but you forget you're tailgating someone in front of you. You've got to look forward. You've got to look at Christ. That's why we read that text earlier, because notice that Jesus says, look, I don't condemn you either. Go. Isn't that amazing? How often Jesus says that? You never see Jesus say, well, here, let's go and make sure we take this 10-step process to fix our past, and then you can be forgiven. Never says that. Go. Live a new life. Live a life in light of the fact that you've been forgiven. Some of you are being crippled by this shame, and you need to stop listening. If I can say this tenderly, stop listening to the voice of the evil one and trust in God's word that he's removed your filthy garments. I had a buddy tell me one time when I was struggling with this uh, very badly. And some of you heard the story. Uh, I, I tell people often when I say my buddy is typically one of two guys and uh, they're both from Mississippi. And uh, one of these guys is a pastor and we were studying covenant theology. And I, I was talking to him about just some real struggles I was having with shame, kind of shame, kind of that, uh, uh, that onfect tongue in him. And, uh, and he said, look, you're, you're thinking too much like you're still underneath the first Adam. And not the same. That you're still underneath the first Adam who just brings condemnation and death and sin and just the law and that's it. But you forget. You're under Christ who gives you life, forgiveness, and blessing and cleansing. That was an amazing word for me. And it was so helpful to be like, that's how I'm thinking. But my reality is not this, it's this. 
It's in Christ. That's what we need to hear. Our garments, our filthy garments have been removed and also we're clothed with new garments. Look at this. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I love Zacharias speaking up. He's like, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments. This is just amazing. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? I think you can, think you can tell. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate view of the Messiah. It is Christ before he takes on flesh. He is the angel, the judge, the representative. And what's amazing is that, as one person says, he is making a definitive decision saying this. If his garments are going to be removed, then on the cross I must take them on me. If Joshua is going to be clothed with pure garments... Where do you think those pure garments come from? They must come from Christ. Remove the filthy garments from him. Clothe him in these new garments. When Zacharias speaks up saying, put a turban on his head. Here's what this is. The turban, a turban was a garment worn by kings for the ceremonial laying of a new temple's foundation. The stone, that's what's mentioned later. So in other words, Joshua is this image of a priest and a king. It's very fascinating, and it makes you ask the question, who else coming later is the combination of a priest and a king? You see it there, right? It is Jesus. And here, as Joshua is clothed by the angel, it reminds you certainly of how God clothed Adam and Eve by grace in the garden even after they sinned. It also reminds you of Luke chapter 15 when the prodigal son is running home and he's saying, Father, I don't deserve to be called your son. Just make me a servant. And the father is like, shut up. Go and get the best robe. Put that thing on. Right? That's your identity. That clothes you. And that's what Jesus Christ does for you and me. That when you come to Jesus Christ, He takes away your sin and He clothes you with His righteousness because He wore your sin on Himself on that cross. And here's the thing. He doesn't do it when you're good enough. He doesn't do it when you actually start living a pure life. He actually pronounces you that way. That's what justification is when you haven't done a thing. All you've done is just, yes, I believe Him. And it's through the channel of faith that God says, righteous. That's amazing, right? It's all because of Christ. It's not because you're good enough. It is not because of your works. It's not because of your effort. It's not because of anything Joshua offered. Yahweh saves. And isn't that interesting? Because Jesus' name is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus, his name means Yahweh will save his people. Isn't that interesting? He clothes us with his own righteousness. And we need to, we need, here's what we need to do. We have to change the narrative within. The narrative that Satan wants us to believe is that we only think about ourselves as only sinful. And you are still sinful. But in Christ, you are righteous. And that's the main narrative, the primary narrative that you tell yourself. 
In Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you are cleansed. In Christ, you are forgiven. Don't believe Satan's lies. Don't believe Satan's shaming. And that's what we need to tell each other. That's what a gospel-saturated community does. is because we're going to struggle with this. And you don't just tell the person, well, how are you doing? How much effort are you putting into things? Or have you fulfilled this? Or have you done this? Stop that. Tell them, look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. That's who you are. That's what you have. That's your identity. And matter of fact, that's the only way in which we become more and more godly. By the gospel. It's only the gospel that can empower obedience. And the angel assures Joshua of this in verses 6 through 7. He says, look, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those uh, who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and his friends who sit before you, uh, for they are men who are a sign. You see, what God is telling Joshua here is that you're in this covenant relationship with me. But we know at the end of the day, can Joshua fulfill this? No. He can't fulfill it. But the greater Joshua can. And that's how Joshua can be saved. Because the greater Joshua is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who would come. And he'll rule God's house. He'll have charge over God's courts. And he has right of access to this courtroom. Do you know where Jesus Christ is right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And if you're a Christian... He is praying for you. He is interceding for you. And when you really screw up, do you know who's right there with you? Jesus Christ. Advocating for you. He's got your back. That's who he is. God is not like the ghost of Christmas past. Look at verses 8 through 10. We are sinful but we will be forgiven. I read this verse just a second ago in verse 8 where it says, for they are men who are a sign. What does that mean when it says a sign? It means that Joshua is a type of the one to come. I mentioned that earlier, that Jesus is going to be the greater Joshua, the greater king priest. And it mentions here, after it says the sign, look at it, behold, I will bring my servant. Now, when you read my servant, you need to be reminded of Isaiah. Remember when we did Isaiah 53 outside and we're talking about the suffering servant, how he'll be crushed for our iniquities even though he had no sin? That's the servant that Zechariah is mentioning here. The servant is that same person, but now it describes him even further. It says, the servant, my servant, the branch. What in the world does that mean? Right? I don't know if any of you have ever had a nickname and you were like, call me the branch. Because that sounds amazing. All right, here's what it means. It is amazing, but let me show you. The house of David. Y'all remember way back in 2 Samuel 7, I think this was right before spring break. We were talking about how David was the king and God made a covenant with David saying, look, I will provide for you a king. And the king who will truly rule and who will bring in all the covenant blessings. And he's going to come from your line. So the house of David was built, but yet the house of David is pictured like a tree. And because they broke God's covenant, it was the picture as if the tree was cut down. But then there were prophecies. 
In Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, A shoot, a branch, shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. A shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Say something somehow out of this cut down tree, there will still be life. Jeremiah picks this up in Jeremiah 23, 5-6 when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Boom. Can't make it up, guys. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He's there. Jesus is the branch. He's the great king of David. He's the one who is Yahweh in our flesh. He's the one who is the greater Joshua. And it says in verse 9 that here's what it says I will engrave, or excuse me, uh, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. What's happening here? What's so interesting is that this stone seems like it's, it's one of the foundation stones to build a temple. Do you know what's so interesting is that in Ephesians 2.20, Christ is called the cornerstone of God's temple. Jesus is also described in Isaiah 8 verse 14, also quoted in the, in the New Testament, as the stone that was rejected, but then he became the cornerstone that builds the temple. And we know that in Daniel chapter 2, he is the stone that will dash down the enemies of God. That Jesus Christ is this stone, but it says that these stones have seven eyes. What in the world is this saying? When you carved gems, they would sometimes look like eyes. So when it's saying eyes, it's actually more so thinking about gems. Now, keep this picture. The gems are on the stone. The stone is Christ. Jesus Christ is the greater high priest to come. You tracking with me? When the high priest would walk into the temple, the garments he would be wearing would be carrying jewels representing God's people. What's happening here is it's describing the work of Christ. The great high priest who bears your name on his chest when he goes to the cross. That's what's happening. And it's as he goes to the cross that it says that in a single day, God will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. It's amazing. And isn't that what Jesus does? On a single day, he removes all the sins, not some, all the sins of all his people. He removes them on the cross because Jesus was clothed with our sins so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. Now, let's bring it back. After something as amazing as this, do you think God will still just rub your face in your own past? Come on. Believe this God, not the ghosts of Christmas past. This is who God is. God's bringing his people, as it says in verse 10, under the vine and the fig tree. That's an image of peace and security, not insecurity and shame. The gospel produces peace, not shame. Amen? God's not like the ghost of Christmas past. That's amazing. Walter Marshall was a man who struggled greatly with doubts and shame And it was because of poor views of the gospel and the Christian life that led Walter to experience 
only little joy from Christianity. And one man says of Marshall, his religion, talking about his Christianity, only caused him affliction and heartache. And he had been very distressed about the state of his soul for many years. Some of you are like that. And he had, he had tried hard to put his sins to death with many different strategies and methods. He had tried to gain peace of conscience by his own efforts, but his mental anguish only increased. That's that onfectungen. He went around mourning for his soul most of the day because his conscience felt so guilty all the time. He always thought that God was displeased and angry with him. Finally, he went to consult some of his friends to obtain relief for his own guilt. And he actually went to consult a pastor named Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called The Heart of Christ, which that's the book that inspired Dane Ortland today to write Gentle and Lowly. So you see where this is going. He went to go speak to Thomas Goodwin. And Marshall opened up his heart to Dr. Goodwin and he mentioned several of his sins that were weighing heavily upon his conscience. And after he had finished describing his sins, Dr. Goodwin replied in this way, You have forgotten to mention the greatest sin of all, the sin of unbelief. You do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to sanctify your nature. He wasn't doing that to guilt trip him. He was doing that to set him free. He's saying, brother, stop it. Believe in him and you are forgiven. And when you keep believing in him, that grace will change you. Not your efforts, not your strategy. The gospel. And that's what you're called to believe. We've had one message all semester, all academic year. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you will be sanctified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not like the ghosts of Christmas past haunting us with our past mistakes and sins, but rather in Christ, we have infinite love. And it is so amazing to be able to proclaim this on, on this last Wednesday night. Help us to believe it, for it is so wonderful to know that in Christ we are forgiven and we have a restored relationship with you. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.